please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. Uh, I know some of you are visiting with us for maybe the first time this morning or first time in a long time. And we are making our way through the book of Acts. And we hope that you're encouraged as we continue looking at uh, this the story of Paul and his, his uh, proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has been in Caesarea. He is now being transported to Rome. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 27, Lord willing, this week and next. And so if you're able to this morning, if you'd please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word. I'm going to be looking at the first 20 verses here in Acts chapter 27. Luke writes this, and when it was decided that we should set we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along, with, along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a, temp- a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last Abandon. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the wording, the reading of his word this morning. And Father, we do ask in your kindness to help us to look at your word and to, to speak it with clarity, to understand the things that you're trying to teach us here and help us in the different 
positions of influence you've placed us. Give us grace. We, we praise you this morning for the gospel. We praise you for the stories we've heard already this morning of how your good news has transformed lives through the working of your spirit, through your sovereign plan of, of sending your son. Uh, we, we praise you for the redemption we have in him that we can understand through your spirits drawing us to you, giving us new life. We pray for that new life to be manifest this morning as we listen to your word, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In Christ's church here in North America, I think we would agree that we are facing a crisis of leadership. Uh, the crisis of leadership we, we face in the church is a, a mirror of the crisis of leadership we face in our culture, but podcast after podcast, article after article that we read, we, we hear of the, the crisis of leadership that exists within the church. And, and far too often, our response to this, this crisis, instead of crying out to God for the leaders that he would give us, our, our cry is similar to the cry of the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they, they tell Samuel they need a, a leader, a king, like the other nations. And so often, we in the church have the same cry. We tell God we like a, a CEO like the nations. We like a, a, a board like the nations, like the other nonprofit organizations or like other corporations. Uh, give us a, a CEO that's a visionary. Give us a, a board that will grow our numbers instead of crying out to God for the leaders that he would call us to desire. Leaders that are, are shepherds. Our cry should be, give us a, a servant. Give us, give us people who, who weep with us in our sin and, and our sorrows and rejoice with us in our, our triumphs. But far too often, too, far too often, unfortunately, we, we care far more about charisma than we do character. And so we get the leaders that we ask for from God. Sunday school teachers, pastor elders, small group leaders, parents who are not prepared to help us weather the storms of life in a God-glorifying way. Leaders who are motivated by things besides a passion to see the name of Jesus Christ worshipped both in the nations and in our own hearts. This passage has a lot to say about leadership and influence. It's not the only passage in the book of Acts that deals with leadership. Remember, as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've spent several weeks talking about deacons and some of the characteristics of deacons. We've talked about disciplers and some of the characteristics of, of spiritual leadership as a discipler. We've talked about elders and the type of, of elders we should desire both to, to be and to have. And so we've talked about leadership before, but here in this passage, we, we see some specific things about leadership in the midst of a storm. This passage, in this passage, Luke continues to focus on a theme that he's been focused on for many chapters now, really throughout the, the book of Acts. He's focusing on God's sovereignty in bringing the gospel witness to the places that he will. The gospel message is God's message. It's not Paul's message. It's not Luke's message. It's no one's message ultimately but God's. And God is going to sovereignly bring about his gospel proclamation where he will. He's going to draw his people to himself as he will. But what we see in the book of Acts is that as God has that mission to bring his gospel 
mission to fruition, God is going to use means to accomplish that end. And, and he's going to use humans to accomplish that goal. Sometimes he's going to use believers to proclaim his gospel. Sometimes he's going to protect his gospel message through pagan governments. But God is going to see his gospel mission achieved. Now, the means that we see God using here in this chapter, what is it? In, in this chapter, we see God using Paul's ability, God-given ability, to influence others to accomplish his mission. God uses Paul's leadership to proclaim the gospel, to protect the gospel ministry, and to protect and, and to care for others. All of us are, are people with influence. All of us exist in some way as, as leaders in some context. The ability to, to influence others is really the, the foundation of a leader, right? Some of us in our work, we, we influence hundreds of people. Some of us influence one or two people. Some of us influence people we don't even know, but all of us are in some position of, of, of leadership, in some position of influence. And the people that we minister to in our positions of leadership are going to go through periods of crisis. They're going to encounter storms. And how are we going to help them in those times? Here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we look at chapter 27 this week and next. During the storm, during the storm, godly leaders do what? Godly leaders challenge people to believe that God will accomplish his good purposes and challenge themselves to do the same. So as life's storms overtake people that we love, what happens? We challenge people to believe, look, God is God loves you and is going to accomplish his good purposes for you in the midst of suffering, as we've heard multiple times this morning as people shared their gospel testimonies with us, right? As leaders, we encourage them with that truth. Look, God is going to use this time of suffering to accomplish his good purposes in you. And then what do we do simultaneously? Simultaneously, we challenge ourselves with that same truth as leaders. Because sometimes, as we see people that we love going through times of difficulty, it can be very hard to continue to believe that. What I want to do this week and next, God willing, is to look at eight truths that I think help us think about what leadership in a crisis looks like. Eight truths that are going to help us influence others to believe in God in the midst of the storm. Here's the first truth that we learn in verses 1 through 8. In fact, we're going to look at two truths in verses 1 through 8. Here's the first. Leaders receive their influence from God. Leaders receive their influence, their ability to influence, their opportunities to influence from God. Let's look at the text. Open your Bibles if you uh, have inadvertently closed them. And uh, look here at the first couple verses of Acts chapter 27, right? For those of you who haven't been with us, Paul has been in Caesarea. And he's appealed to, he's been under trial and imprisonment. He's accused of, of preaching against Jewish laws and customs, of, of uh, instigating riots. All those charges are found not to be true. No one believes he's actually done these things, and he recognizes that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's in trouble, and so he appeals to Caesar in Rome. He says, I want to be tried by Caesar in Rome, and so he's being sent to Rome. It says in verse 1, it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, and they, that, that would be Festus, deliver 
uh, Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. The Augustan cohort would have been this, this special group of troops. Augustan means imperial, and so he's part of the imperial troops. And Julius, perhaps, he is a, a centurion. Maybe he is tasked with the, the special job of transporting things, cargo, people. Uh, it's not entirely clear, but, but certainly he is now here in charge of Paul. And uh, by whatever means God has provided, Julius is a, a noble individual. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. We also see that as Paul begins to, to go on this journey, he goes on a Adramidian ship. I had to practice that many times. I still am not saying it right. Adramidian. Just say it fast, right? Uh, that was my dad's uh, rule of pronunciation when it comes to, to Bible words is just say it fast and confidently because no one else knows either, right? So he gets on this, this ship that's headed to Adramidium. It's, it's owned by, by people there. And so uh, it's just what a private vessel, a coasting vessel that kind of go along the, the coast as it traveled. Couldn't go very far uh, without arriving in a port. And it says that they, in verse 2, they kind of go, that it's going to, to sail along the port, sort of along the coast of Asia. They put to sea. And uh, notice, notice uh, who is with Paul as he gets on this ship from that place. Uh, first of all, notice it says this. It says, we put to sea. We put to, now, what does that mean? When was the last time you saw Luke use the word we? It hasn't been since chapter 21. It's in chapter 21, verse 18, that you see the last time Luke mentioning himself being with Paul. And what happens in Acts chapter 21? Well, that's when they arrive in Jerusalem. So Luke goes with Paul to Jerusalem, then, and then everything kind of goes crazy as there's that riot at the temple, and Paul is taken into custody, then, tra then transported to Caesarea, and so Luke has not been with him uh, since Paul arrived in Jerusalem in chapter 21, I think verse 18 again, like I said, is the last time that Luke mentions being with Paul. Now, maybe he visited Paul some while he was in Caesarea, but he doesn't relate that to us. Now, as Paul gets ready to go to Rome, where's Luke? He's back in Caesarea at Paul's side. Notice who else is with, with Paul. Look at verse 2. It says, Aristarchus. Aristarchus. This is a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We've run into Aristarchus before as well, haven't we? In chapter 19, we saw Aristarchus traveling with Paul. He was in Ephesus with Paul. In Acts chapter 20, he's one of Paul's traveling companions. And Aristarchus, as he gets on the boat here with Paul, he's going to go with him, we think, to Rome. Because in Colossians, which Paul is writing from prison in Rome, he mentions Aristarchus being with them. He says uh, in verse 10 of chapter 4, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And so Aristarchus is getting on this boat with Paul. And so Paul, as he makes his way to Rome on this vessel, there are friends with him. Verse 3, they leave Caesarea. They travel to Sidon. This is a journey about 70 miles. They unload their cargo. And notice that Paul has this, this relationship with the centurion. It says that Julius, verse 3, treats Paul kindly and gives him leave to go to his friends and be cared for there in Sidon. So presumably some of his, some of these believers in Sidon, we don't read about them in the book of Acts elsewhere, but they know about Paul and they go and they, they travel and they care for his needs. It tells us uh, 
a lot about Paul's influence, right? In fact, let's, as we look at these next few verses, some of this can be a little bit confusing. Let's look at a map. Can we go and pull up that map? Is that here? Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how well you can see this, but uh, let me just kind of describe, as we go through these next few verses, kind of describe what's taking place here. So we start, we start in uh, number one, down at the bottom uh, right-hand corner of the, of the map, Remember, Paul was in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 23. He's transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and he's been in Caesarea since chapter 23. And we just read in the last verse, I think verse 3, that he goes from Caesarea to Sidon, and he's ministered to there. And then from Sidon, they travel to Myra. Verse 4 says they begin that journey. They put out to sea. And it says, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. What does the Lee of Cyprus mean? That just means they're using Cyprus as kind of like a shelter. Notice that they go, they go north over that island of Cyprus. It would have been shorter to go south, but because of the winds, they go to the north, and they begin again to make their way toward Myra. Verse 4 uh, tells us that that's what, what is what is what is happening because the winds were against them. That's the first indication that this journey is not going as well as one might hope. Verse five: They sail across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and so you see that that number three. Kind of see how they go: Cilicia, Pamphylia. They're kind of staying close to the coast, and they arrive at Myra. Myra would have been this bustling port city. A lot of the grain from Egypt would have arrived here, and it would not have been very hard for Julius the centurion to find a ship that was going to Rome, and so that's what he does. He finds an Egyptian ship that has, uh, that's carrying grain as its cargo, and they begin to make their way toward Italy, they think. That's verse 6. Verse 7 continues to tell us that this is going uh, not as one might hope. What is, what is verse 7? It says, it says that they sail slowly for a number of days and get to Nidus, and the wind won't let them keep going north. So you see there, they're in, they're in Myra, they, they travel to, to Nidus, and the goal would be to go west, but the winds come and it blows them south toward Crete. And they arrive at this, this port in verse 8 called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. And what they're going to try to do, we'll talk about this more in just a few minutes, but before we go on, they're going to try to sail to, to the, the west of, sorry, yeah, the, the, uh, the west of Crete, but instead they're going to, number six, they're going to get blown off course and blown out into the open sea. And a lot of what happens in the rest of the chapter is, is kind of where that number six is. Before we keep going, Here's, here's, here's a couple application points I want us to think about as we think about this, this truth that leaders receive their influence from God. Paul's influence is seen in some pretty profound ways here, isn't it, right? Paul is able to influence this, this centurion. He's, he's, he's had this ability to, to be dealt kindly with, and this centurion obviously respects Paul for whatever reasons. But we also see Paul's influence in, with, with his friends. Here's Luke and Aristar- Aristarchus willing to travel with him to Rome. Paul has the ability to influence others for the gospel. Here, here's two applications. Number one, you and I need to believe that it's God who determines the scope of our influence. And we're still here on the, this first point, so maybe go back up one. Of course, we're still on this, this first point. Leaders receive their influence from God. Number one, you need to believe that it's God who determines the scope of your influence. You and I don't get to pick who we have influence with and how much influence we have. And some of you may struggle 
with jealousy when it comes to influence. You look at another brother in Christ, and you say, man, why, why does that guy have the, the ministry that he has with others? Like, I'm obviously far more gifted than this brother is. Why, why does God give him? I mean, obviously, God has made some sort of mistake here because clearly I, I, I should be the one influencing others. Or, or maybe, maybe it's not jealousy. Maybe some of you struggle with discouragement. You say, boy, I, I look at other people and I see the influence that other people have, and, and, and for whatever reason, I just don't seem to, to influence the people that I, I would like to influence the way that I like to influence you. you you're maybe your mom, and you look at the relationship between an, another mother and, and, her, and her daughter, and this mother tells you, she says, man, it's so funny, I, I keep getting these texts from my daughter asking for my opinion on these things, and I'm like, give me a break, and uh, always ask me about what kind of clothes to wear, and then you're thinking, my, my daughter doesn't ask me what time of day it is. Uh, why don't I have that kind of influence with my daughter? Why isn't she asking me about my advice on, on fashion? I'll tell you, mothers, my daughters have rarely asked me for advice on fashion. I, the last time my daughter, my oldest daughter, asked me for fashion was, she was asking me, does this tutu go with this swimsuit? And um, I said yes, and so that's, you know. Some of us are jealous. Some of us are discouraged as we think about our lack of ability to influence others. But here's the answer is the same for you this morning, whether it's jealousy or discouragement. It's God who determines your influence. Sometimes God place, has, has placed you circumstantially where you're going to have influence over a lot of people. Sometimes God in his sovereignty places you in a situation where your influence is going to be very minimal. But it's, it's God's sovereign hand that determines that. Maybe he determines it sovereignly by, by just your, your personality. Maybe he determines it sovereignly by your ability. You, you, you and I may just not have the abilities that other people have in, in terms of, of leadership. We, we think about the parable of, of the talents, and we say, oh, but that guy, that guy is, that lady, is a, she's got ten talents, and I've just got five. In reality, we just have one, but we think we have five. You know? It can be discouraging. Are you trusting in God this morning that God is the one who determines the scope of of your influence. It was a group of pastors this past week, and some of them are ministering in incredibly hard places. And you, and you look at the hard places that they're ministering in, and you look at them and their character and their abilities, and you say, okay, it's not because of some lack of character that they're suffering in these hard places. God has sovereignly decided, for whatever reason, that, that, that some of these brothers are going to, to labor in some difficult places. We at this conference, we talked about a Scottish missionary named James Gilmore. Gilmore labored for 21 years from 1870 to 1891 in Mongolia and saw one Mongolian convert during that ministry. Was he faithless? No. God sovereignly said, look, this is all I'm going to do with you for now. So, as we think about this first principle, leaders receive their influence from God, my first encouragement to you would be, believe that God determines the scope of your influence, my, my second encouragement to you under this first point would be trust that God is calling you to serve the people around you now. I've seen this many times, and you've seen it as well, that the, the truest test of a leader is not how many people he or she is, is going to influence. Uh, many books on leadership are, are written about how to expand your influence or how to use managerial techniques, but, but most fundamentally, leadership is about looking around you wherever you are and saying, how can I serve these people? Not how can I expand the number of people that I'm serving, but how can I, I, I serve these people right now? The moment you ask the question, how can I get more people to turn to me, you've already failed the basic test of biblical leadership. 
Our question is not, how can I get more people to follow me? Our question, true biblical leadership asks, how can I get these people to follow Christ? How can I use my influence in that way? Here's the second point I want us to look at, second truth. Number two, leaders serve in the context of relationships. We see this also in the first eight verses. I think this is very profound. I want you to notice what's happened. Think about where Paul is. He's on a a boat headed to Rome. He awaits what he does not know. All he knows is that God has assured him that it is going to be very hard. And so he gets on this boat headed to Rome, headed to who knows what, but he doesn't get on the boat alone. He gets on the boat with Luke and with Aristarchus, two faithful men who are willing to go with him. If you have a view of of leadership that's this lone individual standing against the world, understand you do not have a biblical picture of biblical leadership. Paul doesn't work alone, and neither does any believer who's going to have a long-term success in leading others. A mother doesn't stand distant from her children. A father isn't aloof from the life of his family. A good coach doesn't just yell at his team and then and then walk away. A Sunday school teacher doesn't just stand behind a lectern teaching but not interact with the class. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians. And by the way, 1 Thessalonians, he's writing about his ministry and, and his gospel presentation in Thessalonica. And where, where was Aristarchus from? He was from Thessalonica. So as he writes these words, he could have been writing about his ministry with Aristarchus, who's now getting on the boat with him. But anyway, here's what he talks about. As he, he talks about how he shared the gospel with these believers in Thessalonica, he says, as he came among them, he says, we were, you notice he says we, because it wasn't just him. Again, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul does not stand aloof from the Thessalonians. He's, he's in their lives. He's, he's in, involved in loving them and caring for them. Two thoughts here. Two thoughts. Number one, first thought, that the sheep need a shepherd, not a king, right? The sheep need a shepherd, not a king. We need a great king, of course, but in terms of of being a leader, the the people whom you are caring for need a, a shepherd, not a king. They need someone who who ministers with them, not exalts themselves over them. As you go through the storms of life, as you get into these, these tough times, you, you invite the people that you're leading onto the boat with you. But now, second point of application that I, I'd give you here is, is this. Not only do, do sheep need a shepherd, but the shepherd needs the sheep. Paul needs to be in relationship with the people that he's ministering to four times like this. This is my encouragement to, to those of you, not, not just who are leaders, but those of you who are being led. All of us are, are simultaneously leaders and being led by people, right? Here would be my encouragement to you who are being led by others. Uh, get into the boat with your leaders. Be, be prepared to, to get in the boat with your leaders as they encounter difficult times. The New York Times referenced a Barna survey on, on their Friday podcast about evangelical pastors quitting their churches, and they pointed to a Barna survey. It said that uh, 42% of Protestant pastors 
said they had considered quitting ministry over the past year, and that's, that's up 13, 13 points uh, since last year. So 42% of, of pastors were saying they were thinking about quitting. 56% who said they were quitting said it was just the immense stress of the job. Now, we are at a very sweet church, and, and I'll tell you this, though, I, I, I could not do this job apart from people coming alongside me and, and ministering to me. And wherever you are, you, you couldn't do, the, do it either. And, and wherever you are, as you're being led by others, you need to be the, the Aaron and the Hur of standing on the other side of, of Moses holding up his arms. And if, if you're being cared for by another, know that you are needed to get in the boat. We expect leaders to be strong, right? We expect leaders to be strong, and yet they're, they're not strong without us. Maybe, you're a, maybe your manager at work is a believer, and maybe the application for this, for you this week, is just be going alongside that manager and saying, hey, look, I just know that, that this is a tough place to work, and I want you to know that, that I've got your back, and I am praying for you daily, and I, I, maybe I don't tell you that enough, and I just want you to know, as, as I work for you, that I am going to do everything I can to care for you. Or maybe you know about a tough situation that your, your boss is going through, and you say, look, I just, here, here's some ideas that I've had of how I can, how I can get in this, this journey with you. Or maybe, maybe, you're a, maybe you're a kid here this morning, you know? Maybe, maybe mom and dad are, are going through some tough times. Maybe you as a kid today could just go up to mom and dad today and say, hey, I just want you to know, I want to pray for you. How can I pray for you? Maybe ask mom and dad at lunch, kids. Ask mom and dad, how can I pray for you? I want to, I want to be someone who's, who's getting on the boat with you as you go through tough times. Being a mom and dad is really tough. You're their kid. Imagine how tough that is, right? So get in the boat with mom and dad. Maybe you're, a, maybe you're in a care group. You know that uh, care group leaders, we go through a lot of attrition with care group leaders because being a care group leader is a tough job, and sometimes it's very lonely. You set up your house for the, the care group, and, and then lots of things happen in people's lives, and, and no one shows up that week, or, or maybe a lot of people show up and overrun your house, and, and maybe you have a care group where just there's a lot of health issues one month, and come alongside your care group leaders. Tell them, hey, I'm, I'm praying for this week, and I, I want to I do something, and, and maybe think of some tangible ways to care for them. If you're a leader, but you're existing apart from relationships, you're not a biblical leader. Richard Sibbs would say this, dead stones in an arch uphold one another, and shall not the living we care for one another. We, our leadership exists within the context of relationships. Number three, third truth here, leaders accept that they can't prevent all disasters. Leaders accept this reality. Look, I, I can't prevent all disasters. Now, here, remember, they're, they're, on, that, uh, they're, they're on the island of, of Crete there, and they are thinking about what to do. And it says in verse 9 that some time has passed, and they're, they're, they're behind schedule, and they're arriving at a time of the year in the fall that's very dangerous to travel in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and uh, it, it's very interesting that uh, they, they kind of get a, a group together to decide what to do. And so you can imagine this group. It's kind of interesting. There's Julius, obviously, as the centurion. Check. He's at the meeting. And you have the ship's owner. He's at the meeting. Check. You have the uh, pilot of the ship. Check. That makes sense. And Paul, this prisoner, what is he doing there? 
Luke doesn't tell us. Just some, for some reason, Julius wants him there. And so Julius takes, takes everyone's counsel, and Paul gives him this counsel. Look, this is a bad idea. He doesn't say God told him this, but based upon his, his extensive experience traveling, remember 2 Corinthians 11 talks about him being shipwrecked before and uh, spending three, a night and a day adrift at sea. Uh, actually mentions uh, three times being shipwrecked and one time spending a night and day adrift at sea. So Paul knows what he's talking about when it comes to shipwrecks, and he says, you know, guys, done this before, would prefer not being shipwrecked again. My advice, stay here. But Julius, it says in verse 11, listens to the pilot and the owner of the ship more than Paul. He will not make that mistake again. And it says, verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable there and fair havens to spend the winter, they recognized it could be dangerous for the ship. They decided to put out to sea, and their, their goal is just to go a little bit of a distance to Phoenix, another harbor on Crete that would be more protected from the wind. And so they're going to, to set out. Now, Here's, here's the application here as you think about your, in, your leadership and, and, and just accepting the fact that not everyone's going to, 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 to listen to you and you can't prevent all disasters. Number one, number one, don't be surprised when your influence over others wanes. Don't be surprised by that. Sometimes your leadership is going to increase and people are going to look to you. Sometimes they aren't. And some of us find that incredibly discouraged. We think, man, after all I've invested, after, after my wisdom, people aren't listening to me. When that happens, don't consider yourself a failure. Don't say, well, I guess God can't use me anymore. Jesus led disciples that didn't always listen to him. And was he a bad shepherd? Of course not. He's the good shepherd. Some of us need to be reminded of this encouraging truth this morning. Success in ministry is not defined by people agreeing with you. Instead, what do we do? We continue to, to love and support. So, so my first point of application as we think about this truth, don't be surprised when your influence wanes. That's going to happen. My, my second word of encouragement would be don't be surprised when the people you love make terrible decisions. When they don't listen to you and they make terrible decisions, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged by that. As Paul pleads with them, hey, this is going to be really dangerous. They don't listen to him. He doesn't abandon them. He continues to, to minister. We'll talk more about that next week. But don't be surprised when the people we love make terrible decisions. And leaders cannot prevent that. They cannot prevent that. Maybe you've seen those videos of, of dads making amazing catches with their kids, right? Like, you know, a compilation of clips of dads saving their kids from disaster. So the, the kid's on the swing, and the dad's looking away, and he has this sense, and he just kind of reaches over and catches the kid before the kid falls on the ground, or there's a ball coming, and the dad's hand just reaches out and catching the ball. I am glad there's not a compilation of my parenting when my children were young, because it would have been like me, oh, oh, are you down? Just over and over again, me watching my kids fall, right? And it's not because I wanted that to happen. I just, I have very slow reflexes, right? And I, I can't prevent it. We are, as leaders, our, our, our scope of influence is, is finite. It's not infinite. Our ability to, to control outcomes is, is finite, not infinite. And, and some of you in, in your parenting, in your shepherding, in your leadership just have this, this belief, I, I, can, I can do it all. I, I can control all outcomes. and I, I'm responsible for everything that happens. And, and that's just simply not the case. Our ability to affect outcomes is limited, and, and people that we love are going to make bad decisions at times, and there's going to be disasters we cannot prevent. 
This brings us to the last point I want us to consider this morning. Number four, leaders accompany people into life's storms. Sometimes we just don't have a choice, right? It says in verse 13, they think they have their chance. Remember, their goal is just to get a little bit over on the island, just to go a little bit west. And, and the, the wind from the south is blowing. So, okay, that, that's perfect. It's going to keep us close to the island. We're going to be able to make this short distance, and we're going to be golden. But things change very quickly. As they begin to sail, a tempestuous wind, a northeaster, strikes from the land. And so it drives them out to sea. Verse 15, the, the ship is caught, and it can't face the wind. And so they, they give up. They have to give up, or things are going to, they're, they're going to capsize. So they give way to the wind, and they're driven along. They run along, and they try to go in a lee again, a shelter of a small island called Cauda to the south of Crete. And they, they finally manage to secure the boat. They, they try to undergird the ship with some rigging to, to keep things together. But then now they're afraid they're going to run aground on Syrtis. And so they, they, they begin to, to, to lower the gear. They're driven along. The storm continues, and they begin to, to throw off the cargo to save the ship. The third day, verse 19 tells us how bad things have gotten. They threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So it's not like it got swept off with the, with the storm. They had to to with their own hands throw the tackle that they could use off the ship. And then, verse 20, things are the darkest. This is the, the, real, the real bottom of the story. There's no sun. There's no stars for many days. Big storm lay on us. And all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's it. There's no realistic way we get out of this. The storm isn't subsiding. Things are continuing. That's, that's all she wrote. I want you to think about this. What are the storms you're going through right now? If you ever say, okay, well, here's, the, here's the hardest thing in my life right now. It's it's this relationship, it's, it's this health crisis, it's this financial situation that I don't know what I'm going to do about. What is it, that's, what's the biggest storm in your life right now? Maybe, maybe someone say, look, Daniel, that's cute, one storm. I've got, what, every, everything you just mentioned, I've got all three, okay? Whatever storm you're going through, understand this. If you are a leader... God has not called you to watch people go into their storms by themselves. Now, maybe the, the people that you love are going to face more of the brunt of the storm than, than, than I do or you do, but, but we're in this storm together. And, and if, if the people around you in this room who are part of your, the, the body of Christ together, if, part, if the people in this room are going through turmoil, if they're going through a storm, and you're sitting on an island drinking an iced tea, you are not a biblical leader. A leader is in the storm. Now, we don't have the ability to be with one another 24-7, you know, there, but there should be a constant ache in your heart as you, if you are a person who's biblically influencing others as you see the suffering of those who are going on around you. You know, there's that there's the, the struggle your child is going through. And as a, as a leader, as an influencer there, you are always feeling that heartache. There's a, a woman in your Bible study class that is going through just a, a terrible marriage. And, is, and, and you are never, you're never totally free from that. Why? Because you are in the storm. 
A leader doesn't hold themselves aloof and say, good luck in that storm. Let me know when you're done. A leader is on the boat with the people going through the storm. That's inevitable. And during the storm, what do, people, what do leaders do? Godly leaders in a crisis continue to challenge people to believe that God will deliver, that God will accomplish his good purposes. And, he, and they challenge themselves in that storm to do the same. We can't all be the smartest leaders, right? <laughs> we can't always be the, be the most gifted leaders, but what can we all be? We can all be faithful. And by God's grace, as God gives us these circumstances, what, we, what can we do? We can continue to walk into the storms of the people around us. The, the people who are sitting on either side of you this morning are most likely going through some storm. And what can God do with us? He can call us to go through that storm with us and continue to point them to the hope of the gospel, where we can continue to say, look, here's the hope of the good news. The good news is that we were separated from God because of our sin. We were in, we had no hope. And now God has delivered us from no hope by providing his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And now, because he has died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, we can, we can be in him. We can place our faith in him alone for salvation. And God will forgive us, of us, forgive us of our sins, give us his righteousness, and he will take upon himself our sin. And here is his promise in the gospel. He will never leave us or forsake us. Our end is absolutely secure in him. And so whatever situation, whatever storm you're going through right now, do not fear because God will accomplish his good purposes through it. That's the hope that we can continue to point one another to in the midst of the storm when all hope of life is lost. It's what good God glorifying leaders do. We're going to continue to see that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that we can receive eternal life through our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that in your kindness, you would allow us to point others toward you as well. That we'd see our parents, our children, our friends, our co-workers, Encounter your son Jesus, see his beauty through our words and our lives, and place their faith in him. I pray for those that are going through storms right now that, that none of us know about. We, we pray that they would invite us on the boat with, us, with them, that we would be able to, to walk into that storm, to, to sail in that storm with them, not trusting our own ability to get them through it, but trusting that you will accomplish your purpose. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.